This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm in New York today here with our film critic Richard Lawson. Hello, good to have you in person. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Uh, and joining us as always is our senior writer Joanna Robinson. Hey, Katie and Richard. And then this week we're welcoming a special guest. We have Kyle Buchanan of New York Magazine. Kyle, what's your title? I, uh, I just skip right over it. Senior editor at Vulture. Amazing. So, Kyle, we brought you in because uh, you are as obsessed with award season as the rest of us. You can, you do the Oscar Futures column. You're writing about like where everything stands in the race. You go to Toronto and kind of get a read on it as faster than anybody. Kyle is my f- four year now festival Sherpa. Mm. I came I came to him a little Bambi legged noob <laughs> can a few years ago, and he's really shown me the ropes. So. I appreciate that. So we kind of wanted to take advantage of Kyle being here as kind of uh, some fresh blood in the conversation to uh, for him to tell us, you know, all the things we've been saying that maybe we're totally wrong about. We were going to start with uh, what's going on at the New York Film Festival right now and then get into uh, the week's big release, Blade Runner 2049, which has all kinds of interesting uh, Oscar possibilities to it. I was going to start with uh, a movie that we've been talking about for 10 months now, uh, which is Call Me By Your Name. It premiered at Sundance. I assume, Kyle, you saw it there as well, along with Richard. I did. Yeah. I think I was sitting next to Richard. You, you, oh. you were, we, we, were, we were gripping each other like for moral support. Weeping yeah. together. <laughs> yeah. So it premiered at the New York Film Festival last night. Uh, it was at Toronto a few weeks ago. It premiered at Sundance. And uh, as Richard tweeted, basically, it had one of these like great screenings that sent that proves that even after 10 months of hype, it's still doing pretty well. I mean, at this point, has it kind of gotten over the danger of that? I would think so. I mean, there's there's still <laughs> the most important thing that has to happen, which is the movie has to be released, you know? And the festival audiences are often self-selecting. They are people who go to that movie because they think they're going to like it. Whereas a general release, it's going to be a little different. Yeah, you'll have those people. And I think that uh, it'll do fantastically in more limited releases as, as it's first out. But then you're going to have a whole bunch of people who haven't even seen the movie and yet feel compelled to steer the conversation. And that's going to be a little bit annoying, but I do think that the the thing that has that Call Me by Your Name has in its favor when it comes to Oscar is that people love it so much. There is passion. I've seen the film compared to Carol, which was nominated for several Oscars, but not Best Picture or Best Director. And I think this is different. I have to tell you, the thing with Carol is that the movie didn't always have that passion. Yes, for a certain subset of people on film Twitter, it did, but not. With most of the Academy voters I was talking to, there was not always that ebullient mood when you were leaving the screening. I mean, Richard, you and I were there when that premiered at Cannes, and the reception afterwards was not as psyched as the reception beforehand when people were still anticipating. You know, it's not to take anything away from the movie, it's just that this movie really, really goes there, lodges in people's hearts, and I think. It will have the passion vote with the Academy to do to break into several categories, including picture and I think even director. Wow. I know that they're, you know, 
different movies in a, in a million different ways, but is there any way in which Moonlight's win last year sort of makes uh, everyone feel more optimistic about this uh, movie landing with audience, the wider audience, or any thoughts on that? I think that the Moonlight win, if it does anything, uh, well, it's twofold. One is when we're talking about box office, hopefully it does open up a path in box office to sort of shoot for the moon. You know, it's being released by Sony Pictures Classics and they know how to leg out a movie like nobody's business. So I have faith in them to do that. And I, I really do think this is going to make a lot more money than people are giving it credit for. There is that passion. You can even see it on Twitter. I mean, there are people who are amped, activated to see this movie. Yeah, my, my question that I've been thinking is, will it make more money than Moonlight, which I think made 30 or $27 million here, which is really good for a movie that size. Like, it, it, it does feel like it has the power to go even bigger. I think it could. Uh, as far as Oscar goes, how Moonlight's win influences it, I think that more people would be wondering, pondering, if this could win Best Picture if Moonlight had not won last year. There's this sort of parsimonious idea that like, okay, a gay movie already got through, so this one definitely doesn't have a shot. And in a year where it feels like the front runners are not super strong, I mean, I guess we're assuming Dunkirk, Shape of Water, Three Billboards, but it's diffuse, you know? There is no major front runner. And I'm seeing so many arguments made as to why those movies could win. And I'm not seeing those arguments made about Call Me By Your Name. People have put this self-imposed ceiling there. And maybe it's best that way so that, you know, the hype can be somewhat contained. That this movie that is more raved about than any of the other Oscar contenders, like literally any of them, can still be considered an underdog. I'm curious about that hype, you know, because I had tweeted something last night about like saying that that Call Me By Your Name has survived, almost survived the kind of, you know, the the hype cycle. Um, I mean, obviously, again, it has to come out. But like, do you how 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 vulnerable to that kind of thing do you think movies are, Kyle? Like, if they've been kind of in the festival imagination since January and are now coming out, you know, almost a year later, like, does that has that destroyed movies in the past, or can it really only help a movie? I think it can help, you know. Call Me By Your Name has been playing way more film festivals than than people might realize. Several in between Sundance and NYFF and, you know, a couple more to go, too. And I think it's only contributed to, you know, this this critical adoration. It reminds me sort of of Manchester by the Sea last year, which played a ton of film festivals and came out, you know, smelling like a rose, really, as far as its critical reputation was maintained. And it did quite well at the box office as well. I, I think that it's it's doing well, and I, you know, there's there's always going to be people who sort of fold their arms and go in with an adversarial mood, thinking, uh, you know, I've heard everybody love this movie. I want to be the first person to tell them <laughs> that they were wrong. You know, some people watch movies that way, uh, but uh, that's no way to watch a movie. I've already way. talked to one of those people, and I just said, I don't want to have this conversation. <laughs> was it was it a uh, middle-aged white man uh, who wanted to say no homo? Uh, well, yeah, no, almost, almost, uh, close to that. But, you know, I think we're, we, we've been talking a lot about on this podcast about Timothy Chalamet, his his best actor chances. And, and, and I was surprised, Kyle, to hear you say that you think that Luca Guadagnino, the director, could could get in there for best director. Where, where do you think that movie's strongest chances are, Kyle? Adapted screenplay, for sure. I don't see a movie that could even beat it at this point. Uh, James Ivory, who wrote the script and was actually going to direct the movie for a pretty long time, 
he has never won an Oscar, despite making movies with Merchant Ivory that most people think of as almost the platonic ideal of an Oscar movie. He's, he's in his 90s. This is perhaps your last chance to recognize somebody who has been so significant to cinema and so significant to Oscar. I think that is almost a no-brainer. The question is what sort of promo he's going to do for it. He hasn't really... Uh, I saw, I think, maybe something in a, in a random Euro magazine that he did this past spring. But, but I'm curious to see, and, and, and also sort of curious to see and make sure that there's no hard feelings about the fact that Luca ended up directing it and not James. Oh. Yeah, he, he'll be doing a little press. Um, I got an email from Gary Springer, who people on the festival circuit will know who that is, about there's a, a Merchant Ivory film from, I think, the 60s that's being revived in, in one of the art houses here in New York. And he's doing some press for that. And I, and I sort of was like, well, can we talk about Call Me By Your Name, too? And he said, yeah. So yeah. there have been a lot of Merchant Ivory revivals as of late and 4K restorations. And I think now is the perfect time. It, it's, it's ripe. Ripe as a peach. <laughs> you know, as we're talking on Wednesday morning, this this interview with um, Luke and with Army has been circulating, uh, detailing you know some information, some behind the scenes information about this infamous peach sex scene from "Call Me by Your Name." And uh, Katie was observing in our in our work Slack chat this morning that that might be a story you save later in the award cycle. I don't know if like the revenant is our blueprint for how and when you talk about extreme behind the scenes uh, shenanigans that happened in order to make your movie. But I'm just wondering either from you, Katie or Kyle or Richard sort of what you think the wisest course this movie can plot in terms of active campaigning or active press engagement leading up to potential nomination or win. Well, I think it's important to sort of know that there's a difference between campaigning and just doing plain old promo, which all of these films and these actors and these directors are required to do. You know, uh, obviously, it's a porous thing where you might do a lot more promo uh, than you normally would if you're campaigning. But in the case of this anecdote that you're talking about, there's published in Out magazine. They did a cover story on Army, which just came out this past week. And there's still two months before the movie comes out, but that's about the sort of long lead that print publications often use, uh, you know, when they're promoting or when they're uh, investigating a movie. Uh, And I think also in the case of Out Magazine, you know, I don't think they'd be able to put it on their cover in November because they do a lot of of end-of-the-year double-issue stuff that's already booked. So, you know, as far as... Are they hyping it too early? Are we getting into this stuff too early or or earlier than we normally would, given how the movie has to basically sustain itself till March when the Oscars are? Maybe, but there's been a really insatiable appetite for this film since January, uh, and it doesn't seem to have dissipated. It only seems to grow. You know, I think that we have our antenna out, and to be fair, so do a lot of people for whom this movie is you know, uh, they're going to be more inclined towards it. But the regular moviegoer, they still aren't paying attention. This stuff will be new to them once we start talking about it later in the year, too. Yeah, it's that kind of thing where you, at least for me, you know, going to these festivals, which is great, and seeing all these movies, and then we're right at the time of year now where I'm like, I don't even know what's out right now, so I I kind of forget, like, what's actually playing to real people, Yeah, you know? Um, But I I, I think that, like, a a, a rosy financial future for Call Me By Your Name is is not something I... I think that's likely, in in some sense, in some, you know, art house 
uh, box office in any way. Um, but to kind of go into some other movies, Kyle, like w- let's go back to that adapted screenplay thing. W- who else do you think is a challenger? Um, a movie that's also at New York Film Festival's Last Flag Flying, Richard Linklater's war dramedy road movie. Do you see that as a contender, or if not, what else? I would technically classify that as a contender, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that it played super well in its NYFF premiere, or at least expectations were very high. Linklater, you know, one of our foremost hangout auteurs crafted this movie that I respect, but didn't ever really buy or emotionally connect with. You know, it's, it's about this uh, trio of war veterans that come back together, Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, and Lawrence Fishburne. And while it's going for this sort of like, you know, opposites attract kind of buddy comedy, I didn't think they had chemistry or had even ever met before the movie started rolling. And I think that the dialogue, the pacing of the thing, it's just off. It's not usually as enticing as as Linkletter's movies are. That said, you know, anything that sort of is aimed squarely at that older white guy demographic is going to find favor in the Academy because... You know, in large part, the Academy has made up people in that demographic. I mean, they've been trying to diversify, but, uh, you know, that's still just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I also wonder if, like, maybe that older white guy demographic, they are they have so many toys being dangled in front of them between Dunkirk and Darkest Hour. <laughs> that, like, yeah. And the Post. The and post the Post is coming. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so maybe maybe uh, this won't be a, a year for, for Linklater. Um, it does seem like like something that premieres like that and is the New York Film Festival is crowded. I mean, Call Me By Your Name isn't, like, one of the centerpiece films there, but it's still got all this attention. Like, it just seems so easy for something like that for him to be like, oh, you know, it's fine, but we'll move on and just to kind of vanish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like um, you know, Twentieth Century Women, a very different movie, uh, premiered at the New York Film Festival last year and played well. It it did get a screenplay nomination uh, in the end, but yeah, it, it it didn't do the kind of um bigger you know push that that it maybe looked to be on paper when we first heard that it was gonna you know coming out. And I feel like the same is true of this. Like it can kind of came and went. It's still hanging on in a couple of categories, but like you know. It's it's sort of a whimper. And 20th Century Women had like really passionate fans, which sure Last Black yeah. Flying does not seem to have. No, I'm sure they're out there, but they just haven't. They haven't. They haven't. <laughs> they're all old the white mo- men. The movie's not playing in Scottsdale yet, so. <laughs> well, I think the thing that we need to sort of keep in mind is, is that even if people aren't passionate fans of the movie, there are a lot of passionate fans of Brian Cranston in the Academy, especially the actors branch. Uh, you know, I think he's sort of. Almost Christoph Waltz level, where people just respect him so much and and are tickled by every performance, even if it's you know not necessarily his best reviewed. I think that he's always going to be a threat, and that people might be more inclined to check out his movies because he's in them uh, when they're in the screener pile. Well, that's so interesting that you say always, because I, I wonder if, you know, like the Cranston nomination for Trumbo felt a little like what is happening here but okay that's the power of cranston but i wonder as he gets increasing distance from breaking bad uh if he doesn't post more film performances that really are dazzling people because i can't think of a film performance he's done that has like actually dazzled people and that it, it feels like just walter white residual respect you know and i wonder if that will fade over time i'm just curious about that Maybe, but not in the next decade. <laughs> you know, uh, he's got that respect. He has it. I don't think he's going to, uh, nobody's going to take it away. And let's not forget, I mean, 
while he might not have had a dazzling big screen career, he has had a notable one. He co-starred in a movie that won Best Picture recently, Argo. And I think that the nomination for Trumbo was an indication of how excited people in the Academy were to finally be able to nominate Brian Cranston for something. Yeah. And, you know, I think he also has this kind of journeyman actor, you know, thing, which, which people like It's sort of a Richard Jenkins esque kind of, you know, trajectory. His Cranston's dad was an actor. He grew up in town, you know, but that's, you know, there is another interesting thing about last flag flying and call me by your name, which is that they're both potential supporting actor contenders. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any of the three really from last flag flying though, I guess Carell is kind of more of a lead. And then Michael Stuhlbarg for call me by your name who, to my mind, a little while ago, seemed like the sure thing, except now you have talk about Sam Rockwell and three uh, billboards um, that's coming out and won the big prize at at Toronto, the audience prize. How do you see that race shaking out, Kyle? Yeah, I think it's interesting with Best Supporting Actor. You know, you mentioned Michael Stuhlbarg, Richard, and I think that Armie Hammer has a chance in that movie as well. It's just, you know, it's not always easy to get two people nominated from the same film, especially this year in that category, because there are a surplus of contenders from movies that will almost certainly be nominated for Best Picture. I mean, Shape of Water has two, and Richard Jenkins and Michael Shannon, and Sam Rockwell in Three Billboards is fantastic, with probably the biggest arc of any of the contenders. And I think, you know, he's never been nominated for an Oscar before. He has... This this category is going to be filled with so many perceived overdue character actors. So I think that that narrative is going to potentially cancel, uh, you know, like Willem Dafoe is an, uh, an overdue character actor, Stuhlbarg, Richard Jenkins, uh, Michael Shannon. And so you kind of have to look at the role itself. And I think that nobody has the journey and transformation that Rockwell has and You know, honestly, a lot of people in the industry love him and have worked with him. So I think he's probably the biggest threat there. Now, you mentioned Willem Dafoe in The Florida Project, and I would agree that I think that's that well-reviewed, well-liked movie's best chances at the Oscars. Um, But before we recorded this morning, uh, Katie and I were talking in the hallway and about Florida Project's broader chances. You know, it it, it, it too screened at Aero Film Festival. It was really well-received. People were super into it. There was apparently a pretty fun kind of after-party. Like, there was just a good vibe about that movie in New York. So we were thinking, like, could it be Best Picture? I mean, A24 also has Lady Bird this year, and that kind of emerged just to, you know, just um, to a lot of kind of surprise uh, at Telluride as an awards contender. How do you see that playing out, Kyle? Do you think that A24 could just run two successful campaigns, or will they have to pick one? Or or is Florida Project just too small to, to really register on that bigger level? Well, much love to my friends at A24, but they have not yet run two successful campaigns for Best Picture. They tend to back one horse and leave the other. You know, last year, Moonlight found favor, and 20th Century Women did not seem to get the same push. I think... The most notable time that this happened was when A24 put all of their chips on Room and Brie Larson. I mean, you know, successfully so. She won Best Actress. But then you saw Ex Machina pull out a visual effects win. It had also been nominated for screenplay. They hadn't pushed Alicia for it because of her, you know, she was contending for a Danish girl. And it got me thinking, if they'd really reintroduced that movie in a big way that could have gotten into the best picture race. You know, there was that that sentiment for it. So I'm curious to see what they'll do this year because I don't think there's necessarily an overweening favorite amongst Lady Bird and Florida Project. I think 
Lady Bird, you know, it's a little bit more conventionally Oscar-y, although not that conventionally Oscar-y. Florida Project, though, there is a lot of passion for this movie, and that's ultimately what you need to get into the Best Picture Derby. You need just enough people who are passionate enough to give it number one votes, and it will get them. You know, my initial read when I saw it at Cannes is that it'll be a massive indie spirits winner, that some of the things that I like most about the movie, which is its brashness, its brattiness, are things that, like, the older people in the Academy will be turned off by immediately when they start watching it. But we'll see, because I think there are enough people who are younger, who are really into it, that will respond to it. I have it just outside my Best Picture lineup right now. Just so while we're talking about A24 multiple campaigns, and this hasn't really come up yet, but I'm really curious about what's going to happen with The Disaster Artist, because that had a really great Toronto screening. Uh, All of a sudden, people are like into James Franco as a director after he's made a lot of movies that nobody saw. Um, I mean, that's three movies for A24, and that seems like the least likely best picture contender, but it does seem like they are going to mount some kind of campaign for it. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned Adapted earlier. I think that's almost certainly going to get nominated feels like the right year for it it's a movie that people will really enjoy you know it's an industry movie about the industry those often do really well with oscar we know this i think they'll also be pushing james franco for uh, best actor and i think he has a shot i really do especially as some of the more conventional choices drop away or, or don't seem to be that big of a threat i think he's hilarious better than he's been in ages i think that when you have an actor who's been nominated before and had kind of a fallow period and they come back with something really strong. The Academy's very into that comeback narrative and they're very into rewarding that with the nomination because it's their way of saying, we were right to have believed in you. Even though he ruined the uh, 2011 Oscars or 2012 Oscars. Yeah, well, I mean, like shortly after that, Anne Hathaway won an Oscar. So <laughs> I think, you know, the institutional memory there is, is, and again, it contributes to this notion that the the role and the movie represents a comeback. So yeah, I think I think that could do really well. The thing that potentially worries me is that it's coming out so late. And I remember that not working out so well for 20th Century Women last year. I think if it were coming out somewhat earlier to sort of take advantage of all that buzz, it would be better. But we'll see what happens. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
So let's maybe move on from all these tiny movies to the giant juggernaut that is facing us this weekend. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 is out. Uh, it's going to be everywhere. It already is everywhere. It feels like like Ryan Gosling's been, you know, every time you turn around, he's hosting SNL or whatever. And I think maybe we shouldn't talk too much about the details of the film because there are, it does seem like there are spoilers to be had and they've done a really good job of keeping the plot to themselves. But I mean, how I mean, and Richard, you saw it, you reviewed it. You're like maybe not as bold over by it as a lot of people, but it does it mm. does feel like it's got a presence as a kind of studio movie in Oscar season. Yeah, and and you know, I think that uh, Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve, who directed the film, like you know, Arrival did very well last year in terms of getting nominations, and and you know, it, it didn't initially maybe seem like that when it first was at festivals, but like people like a big stylish blockbuster kind of thing, and this movie I think is less Blade Runner is less emotionally rich than Arrival is, which, you know, Arrival is an alien story, but it's really about, you know, child rearing and grief and all this stuff. And Blade Runner is a little bit more straightforward in terms of its themes. But I think the big, the big asset for that movie that we've all seen in trailers and uh, is the, is the visual, you know, grandeur of the movie, the music, this crazy Hans Zimmer, just rattling oral, you know, soundscape. They're so overwhelming in a good way at parts of the film that like, the thinness that I kind of saw underneath it might just kind of not bother other people. Kyle, you've written two pieces about the Oscar hopes for this, including one entirely about Roger Deakins, which I think we can get into. But I think you were noticing how when the embargo for this lifted, like critics were just so into it. And Villeneuve has kind of you know been building this reputation for himself. Do you feel like that's going to keep it going over the next few months? Yes, I do. I think the only potential hitch here is how it will do with, at the box office with mainstream audiences. It's a little esoteric it's a little bit languorous in an arty way that i think the academy will for sure respond to because it gives it the imprimatur of art but that i wonder if general audiences will be like oh it's too long too boring and rebel against it Uh, because you know i think box office is important for creating the narrative of a winner people like to bet to back winners so but i i think it'll probably open strong and do uh enough to to sort of keep that going yeah i think Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, he's is being pushed as his year, and it very well may be. I think his only real competition at this point is uh, Dunkirk, and movies that win Best Cinematography are almost always Best Picture nominated. So I have to think that the movie has a pretty strong shot of cracking that lineup. Yeah, it makes me think of maybe, it's interesting that you said Dunkirk, the way that Inception was kind of a big technical contender and it got into the 10 as the blockbuster. But I also wonder if Blade Runner and Dunkirk kind of start, you know, elbowing at each other because there's not, you know, there's a lot of really good indie movies or smaller movies as we've been talking about. So how many blockbusters plus Get Out are we really trying to make room for? Well, you know, Inception, I think in some ways had it a little bit easier. It was a gigantic summer hit. You know, it was the thinking movie of the summer. Nolan at that point was considered overdue because they'd expanded the best picture field specifically for him. And it was original material. So in those ways, you know, because Blade Runner doesn't have those things necessarily going for it. It's a somewhat tougher road to hoe. But Mad Max proved last year with uh, many of those same potential debits that it's not Oscar stopping to have some of those things tucked away. I think that the, the, the movie, especially the original movie, it, it's really well positioned to, you know, people grew up on Blade Runner that are in the Academy. People worked on it, admired it from that era, or grew up wanting to make movies in part because of films like Blade Runner. Uh, so to have a movie like this, where you can reward not just it, but Blade Runner and the notion of movies like Blade Runner, I think that's potent. 
the world of Blade Runner. And we should all, I mean, you know, speaking about t- a tougher road to hoe, I mean, we should all just mention that, like, all of these movies have a tough road because Tulip Fever is just lo- looming yes. so large at the top of the pile. <laughs> the know? year's number one hit, yeah, right? I, mean, I just think, like, going forward, people should just accept that, you know, that, that that's that's the context yeah. of what we're talking about. It's Dane DeHaan's I mean, year. Yeah. <laughs> what does Alicia Vikander's mom's friend think of Blade Runner? <laughs> that's the real question. I'm, I'm curious to see the answer. So after we talked about Arrival doing well and, you know, we're just a couple years off of The Martian, is the idea that the Oscars and sci-fi don't really go together, is that over now? Like, I think 2001, Space Odyssey was kind of the famous example of, like, they're just never going to get it. But it doesn't. that doesn't seem to be the case anymore when you get, like, I mean, I guess a sci-fi movie hasn't won in a long time, but Gravity and Arrival and The Martian, like, this, there's a lot of track record in recent years. Yeah, and I almost wonder yeah. if, if, like, the embrace of genre television mm. uh, ha- has any bearing on that or, or maybe they're just happening concurrently. Well, it predates it a little, right? Because, you know, sci-fi and fantasy are two different things. But I think Lord of the Rings sort of doing as well as it did in the end, um, which predates Game of Thrones, inspired Game of Thrones, in fact, is um, really laid track. And then also, you know, you mentioned Nolan, like a a comic book movie getting nominated is is a big deal. So it's, I don't know, I I think that this has been slowly gestating. And and the fact that hard sci-fi is getting in a little bit more, um, I think is interesting to talk about, but it's not as sudden of a turn, I think, as some people think. What do you think, Kyle? Uh, Looking over the last few years, I think that the Academy has been trending in a direction more towards technical achievement, especially... In like a best director category, I, I think that they really look for people like Ang Lee with Life of Pi or Alfonso Cuaron with Gravity that are bringing off something that they feel like nobody else could that is so mammoth that it's hard to imagine even making that movie, let alone making it so well that Oscar would respond to it. So I think that that favors a movie like Blade Runner. Obviously, it favors Dunkirk. Uh, which is a technical achievement too, but in a genre, the war film, especially the World War II film, that the Academy is already pretty predisposed to like. I think that the track has been laid down over the last few years for a movie like Blade Runner to be nominated by the Academy, You know, not just in the sci-fi films that you named earlier, but in the sense that they are really responding to the those massive technical achievements. Well, I guess the the box office is going to tell us a lot. Like for a lot of these films, like we were talking about, whether or not people like "Call Me by Your Name" is part of it, but not the whole thing. But I think if Blade Runner like is a hit this weekend, then it becomes a really strong contender, and, and otherwise, yeah, the, it's a tougher road. It gets the kind of populist mandate. Thing. Yeah. Although, you know, like you said, Dunkirk already has that. But yeah, yeah. well, you know, and then the, the Wonder Woman Oscar campaign, which is, you know, it's not foolish, but I think they definitely have a, a hard road ahead, especially yeah. if another blockbuster gets in the mix. Yeah, I think the the problem with Wonder Woman is that it's not going to easily get nominated in most of the tech categories. You know, the cinematography, the effects, et cetera, et cetera, they're solid, but they're not exceptional. I don't doubt that for Wonder Woman 2, Patty Jenkins is going to get her pick of people and a real investment in making those tech categories feel superlative and, and top of their fields. But I think it's going to be hard for it to get into those things that should be a no-brainer for a big action spectacular that has some uh, Oscar buzz. I think there's also the potential for whether it's fair or not for Justice League to come along and potentially sort of stain yeah. the buzz uh, off Wonder Woman. So um, 
look for, I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll be the best movie you've ever seen, Justice League, and boost Wonder Woman further. Well, let's also not forget how the mountain between us could just take all the buzz from Blade Runner this weekend. You know, that, that, <laughs> that mountain lion and that dog. That mountain lion scene... <laughs> Is so good. It's scary. It's effective. I don't know. I I was I was pleasantly surprised. I'm about to write a post. But basically, the headline is "So did they do it on that mountain or not?" But anyway. uh, in the in the style of "So does Harry Styles die in Dunkirk?" That's or not? exactly right. Yeah. yeah, just you know, reader ser- servicey. Yeah, the people uh, come get uh, come here and get what they need. I was just revisiting the box office. For, you know, I am very curious to see if people show up for Blade Runner 2049. But I was just revisiting the box office for the original Blade Runner, which made $6 million in Ooh. its opening weekend. So if you can top that, Blade Runner 2049, I'm rooting for you. <laughs> That's actually not so bad, given <laughs> given the era, $6 million in its opening weekend. It wasn't a hit back in the day. You know, so so it this is not. this is a sequel to a, a big, big, big sequel to a movie that actually only kind of found its uh its audience uh, later so right. i think that that adds an ex- interesting element to to the kind of narrative i i went into blade runner having seen the movie once about 10 years ago when i was not you know i was stoned i'll just say it uh <laughs> and uh have not felt compelled to revisit it since then and so i was not a you know i wasn't against the movie but um so i probably reacted to it in a di- very different way than someone who's a diehard you know fan of it and as twitter has proven uh, they're they're out there <laughs> All right, let's wrap this up. Kyle, I promised when we brought you on that I wanted to quiz you about maybe your hottest Oscar take or like uh, wildest prediction since I think we tend to talk to each other a lot and talk about the same stuff. So we've gotten into a lot of it, but where do you feel like you're maybe uh, out from the pack, but you believe in whatever you're predicting and it's going to come true even if no one believes you yet? Well, it's kind of a two-parter on the same theme. And I don't think I'm necessarily... I don't think I'd find a whole lot of people who would disagree with me, but I haven't seen it stated this plainly. I don't think any of the Netflix movies are going to get the nominations they want. I don't think they're going to penetrate those big categories. You know, we've seen the documentary branch is more amenable to Netflix movies and may still be. I know that they're trying to pull something with the Angelina Jolie movie so that it can get into foreign language, but when it comes to the acting races and picture and director, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think we're reaching a tipping point where Netflix is making its most concerted bid yet to get into those categories. And the industry and the Academy is reacting with its most concerted bid yet to prevent that from happening. When you say the Netflix movies, just to be clear, it's Mudbound, The Meyerowitz Stories. And First I Killed My Father. Yes. Okay. So those are the big three that they're pushing. Yeah, okay, so here's where it gets a little more controversial. I don't think they deserve to be in contention. Ah. This is not a mark to the quality of the movies. It's more that I think we do kind of have to define what is a movie and what's television. You know, if it's a streaming service, is that a movie? You know, and I recognize that this is maybe like an outdated opinion that the future of how people watch movies and what will be day and date in 15 years, that could change, uh, which I think is part of why the Academy and a lot of anxious people in the Academy are sensing that now is the time to make a bulwark uh, and decide once and for all how this is going to work. But I think I'll give you an example. You know, Ava DuVernay made a documentary last year. It was great. I want everyone to see it. It was nominated for Best Documentary Feature at the Oscars, and it was also nominated for Best Documentary at the Emmys. And I think that 
that double dip is revealing. If a movie can qualify for both the Oscars and the Emmys, then I'm not sure it should qualify for the Oscars. Although OJ Made in America won the documentary Oscar, and I guess it didn't qualify for the Emmys, but also aired on ESPN. It was uh, not, it, it fell into a similar weird zone, but managed to win the Well, Oscar. and people were really upset about that too. They you were. know, I mean, a lot of people voted for it, but a lot of people thought that that was, you know, an incursion onto what a movie actually is. And I think that there's been blowback from that. And, and I think that the Netflix movies this year, will suffer for it. And I think the problem too is that none of them have that sort of overweening we have to recognize this movie vibe, you know? I think that they would have better chances if they were coming out theatrically, exclusive theatrical window, but I don't think any of them have like a powerhouse front runner status in any category, so it's easier to dismiss them sort of out of hand. Yeah, it's going to, I mean, we've talked about this since Cannes, we're going to keep talking about it, and uh, I mean, I think we've talked about Mudbound, which premiered at Sundance, which would go a long way toward making this whole race less white, which it is overwhelmingly yeah. so this year, but I think we've all been kind of agreeing that like it's not going to get the shake that it might deserve because of the Netflix release. It kind of feels like that movie's living up to its title, I hate to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Best Adapted Screenplay is very thin this year. Yeah. Uh, there's possibility for it to get nominated. In fact, I think if it were distributed theatrically exclusively, it would have a strong shot at being yeah. nominated. But again, I think it's very easy to just dismiss these movies. Now, that said, Netflix has uh, hired a very uh, qualified, uh, well-vetted awards team to sell, this fil- sell these films. And you know they'll be doing screenings and parties that give it the vibe of a movie that has come out in theaters. But they won't have. And I think that a lot, you know, we were talking earlier about box office success and how people like to back winners. There is this silence when a movie is released on Netflix that's really odd. You, you, you'd mentioned it, Richard, I think on a previous episode, how the Angelina Jolie movie just sort of got dropped in there, like <laughs> with no warning and, and yeah. no real buzz. I haven't seen people talking about it as though they know it exists. You know, they'll do screenings for it, but there isn't that sense of, is this movie success? We don't know. Netflix guards its viewership figures so ardently that the (laughs) the sort of key part of the narrative during award season is, is the movie doing well? Is it succeeding? And if you don't know that, then it feels like less of a movie. Yeah, I would agree. And and, and I I think that it's a problem that that netflix has to address um before we let you go i just wanted to ask we didn't talk about best actress but kyle do you see anyone beating reese witherspoon in home again at this point or is that <laughs> i think uh, home again's strongest shot is an original screenplay <laughs> wouldn't that be you know something? there's a lot of powerhouses this year but don't count it out right, we won't <laughs> and uh, visual effects <laughs> that pico alexander he's good looking so he's, he's, yeah, i mean yeah. uh kyle thank you so much for joining us uh we always sign off by us uh, saying where you can find us so where where can we find your work and you on twitter and everything else i'm on vulture and i write for new york magazine and i am on twitter at kyle buchanan 
So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks again, as always, for listening. And please find us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your reviews and your ratings. And as always, this is the time of year where there's so much to talk about. So tell your friends to uh, join the conversation with us. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, talking about award season and lots of other stuff. Uh, we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, where we also love hearing from you. And we're going to talk about it. We got a tweet from a listener about the Oscar hopes for it. So I think maybe we can get into that next week. I just have to... I have to just put my big boy pants on and go see the damn thing oh i'm not going to <laughs> well somebody has it. you've seen it joanna at least so i've seen yeah. it i can be the expert on yes okay. sewer clowns <laughs> so look forward to sewer clowns next week uh you can uh find me i'm at katie rich uh richard rylos and joanna joe wrote this and mike is going to be back with us next week he's at mike underscore hogan you know where to find him this episode was edited and produced by jordan bell and thanks to andy bowers at panoply and this week's award for the best double entendre that you'll all understand in two months goes to Kyle Buchanan. It's ripe. Ripe as a peach. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.